Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Breaking Butterfly podcast. I am joined with a very special guest today. I am so excited. My my listeners are probably already so excited just from seeing the title. It, it's not a surprise. You guys know exactly who I have here with me. Um, and Gay doesn't know this yet, but all of my listeners know who you are because I am the biggest The Big Leap fan on planet Earth. I promise you, I that book is my everything. All of my clients read it. I talk about it constantly. It is yeah, it is my favorite book of all time. So I bet my listeners are like, oh my God, I cannot believe Maddie has Gay Hendricks on the Breaking Butterfly podcast right now. But just a little introduction, you guys, if you don't know who Gay Hendricks is, um, he has served for more than 30 years as one of the major contributors to the fields of relationship transformation and body-mind therapies. Along with his wife, Dr. Kathleen Hendricks, Gay is the author of many bestsellers, including Conscious Loving, At the Speed of Life, The Big Leap, of course, and the New York Times bestseller, Five Wishes. He is the founder of the Hendricks Institute and co-founder of the Foundation for Conscious Living. And throughout his career, he has done executive coaching with more than 800 executives and successfully combines business skills and personal development tools. And what I actually didn't know is that you were also a mystery novelist. I had no idea. So that's pretty cool as well. Um, And like I said, he's also one of my biggest inspirations and the author of my all-time favorite book, The Big Leap. So say hello. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Great to be with you, Maddie. I appreciate you particularly mentioning my mystery novels. That's that's what I do in my spare time. I write books like The Big Leap in my uh, regular life. And then uh, when I don't have anything to do for a couple hours, I sit down and uh, work on a mystery novel. I I love that. Yeah, I had no idea. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit today. Uh, but I, I have also gotten a, not writing, but reading. I've really gotten into fantasy books and I think sometimes in the personal development world, it's good to just, yeah, get into the uh, a fiction world every once in a while, and you know, yeah, yeah, it's just good. It's good for the soul. So, I love it. Um, well, I kind of wanted to start out again. I think a lot of my listeners know who you are and have also read your book, The Big Leap. I'm telling, I shove it down people's throats. I'm like, just read this book. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I guess like for people that haven't read it, can you, I guess let's start out with uh, talking about the upper limit problem. This is the concept for me that I really feel like changed my life. And yeah, I'd love for you to share a little bit about like what is the upper limit problem exactly? How do we solve it? And also how how did this concept even come to be? Did this come after uh, like a transformative part of your life where this came to you? Was it a download? I'm curious to hear where did the upper limit problem and the solution to it come from? Great question. Well, thank you for asking because the origin of it is probably one of the most interesting things. But the upper limit problem is our human tendency to sabotage ourselves when things start going better. And I bet many people have had the experience of let's say, starting a new diet. And for three days, everything goes great. And then on the fourth day, you eat something that's not on your diet. And then you say, oh, the hell with it. And (laughs) just go back to uh, your regular way of eating. Well, that's the upper limits problem in action. And 
actually in the very beginning, the first time I noticed it on myself was in regard to weight loss. I was obese and I had lost, I'd gone on a new way of eating. Um, in fact, I should tell all of you, many of your viewers and listeners will probably have struggles with food. So let me tell you a little bit about my story. When I was born, I had some kind of glandular problem with my thyroid and all that. They didn't discover what the cure was till many years later when I was in my 20s. But uh, at the time, I had this rare disease that caused me to gain weight. Um, mm. I, I, I was in a family where everybody else was thin, but for some reason I was fat eating the same kind of food. Later on, they figured that I had this mechanism that immediately turned food into fat and um, they had some ways to correct that, but that was much later on. And I was taken around to different uh, medical people and dietitians and people like that. And I was put on a bunch of different diets and things. But the problem really never got resolved until I had an experience that actually helped me resolve it even without taking any medication. When I was 24 years old, I was more than 100 pounds overweight. And that wasn't all that was going wrong in my life. I was in a really toxic relationship that I'd been in for a couple of years. And I was working at a school for delinquent boys where, you know, basically very stressful work. And I didn't like where I was living. And you know, I was like, everything was wrong in my life by age 24. And so somehow unconsciously, I engineered a very happy accident for myself. I went out for a walk one afternoon. I was living in New Hampshire and it was winter. And I went out for a walk to clear my head after I'd had a big argument with my then partner, Linda. And so I was walking down this country road and deserted country road. And I stepped on a place where the uh, snow was covering a patch of ice and my foot slipped on the ice and I went whoop down on my back and I banged my head too, although I didn't knock myself out. But I, you know, if you think about a, th a 300 pound person, which I was more than 300 pounds, is about the size of a refrigerator. And you know what a refrigerator sound it makes if it goes down, bam. Well, you know, I made the equivalent boom on the ground. And I didn't knock myself unconscious, but I knocked myself into kind of a super conscious state for about two minutes. It was like I could see down through layers of myself that I'd never been aware of before. I realized that underneath all this layer of fat were a whole bunch of incredibly tight muscles that I didn't even know how tight they were, but I was like a suit of armor inside. And then I, I could see down underneath there were all of these emotions that I didn't even know I had or didn't certainly didn't know how to express. I could see there was a big layer of anger and there was a big layer of grief and a big layer of fear. And it was like taking an elevator ride consciously down through all of those. And I could see I was angry about being obese and not knowing how to do it. 
uh, how to do anything about it. And I was sorrowful about my father's death and my grandmother's death. And I had all this grief tied up inside. And I also had all these fears about what if I die before I solve this problem? Well, it was a huge moment for me of seeing down through all of these layers that I'd never been aware of. But then here's the real magic. When I got to the bottom of all of those feelings, I realized that there was this other thing that was behind and beyond everything. I called it pure consciousness. It was just the being part of ourselves that doesn't have any history on it. It doesn't have any programming on it. It's mm -hmm. just always there in the background. And most of us don't even know we ha have it because we haven't kind of cleared our way down through all the le levels of ourselves to feel it. But in that moment when I was 24, I felt it and saw it strongly. And I realized that's where I want to live. That's I want to always have the awareness like I'm having this moment. And then what happened was I started kind of coming back into my regular awareness again. I realized, oh, I'm laying on a frozen road shivering. Oh, I'm cold. I forgot to tell you that I smoked heavily at the time, Marlboro's. And I, I oh, I want a cigarette. And oh, I've got to walk back a mile in the cold to get to my apartment. <laughs> anyway, it was like one layer of, uh, you know, yeah. disappointment. But I had this really, I think this saved my life. Before I came fully out of it, I made a vow. I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes to feel that pure consciousness in every moment of my life. I'm going to do whatever work is necessary to reveal that. Wow. So I just, you know, I walked back home and everything, but that vow changed everything because in my food, I started eating foods that I felt would feed my pure consciousness. Mm -hmm. I stopped eating foods that had made me fat. You know, I, I figured, okay, Everything I've eaten up until now has made me weigh 300 and some pounds. I'm going to stop eating that and start eating things I've never eaten before. And so the first thing I could find that I hadn't uh, eaten was, uh, I mean, I'd eaten it, but I hadn't really focused on it as a food, was some blueberries. And I ate those blueberries. And for about three days, I just lived on blueberries. And I lost something like 10 pounds in three days. But I was it wasn't so much the losing the weight. It was the feeling I got of eating foods that made that pure consciousness come alive in me. And so I started, instead of having a cheeseburger for lunch, I'd have some cut up fruit and maybe a little bit of yogurt or something like that for some protein. But I stopped eating all of the things that had made me fat. And I, within a month, I had lost 35 pounds. Wow. That was huge, you know, and I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'd gone down there for the weekend and I looked in the window of an ice cream shop and I saw a family, a little family of four eating this gigantic ice cream sundae with bananas on it and three different flavors of ice cream and everything. And I went into a trance. 
I went into that shop and I ordered one and I ate it pretty much the whole thing. And this is after 30 days of eating only pure food. Well, for about 10 minutes or so, when all the sugar was pumping through me, you know, I felt like king of the universe. But then I was walking down the street outside about 20 minutes later, and I got the biggest stomach ache of my life. I doubled over actually on the sidewalk. I was, you know, kind of with my head between my legs and people were stopping and saying, sir, are you okay, sir? You say, no, I was not okay. Uh, so I was in the grip of my first upper limit problem. So that's a classic in the sense that one moment I was feeling great. And then for some unconscious reason, I did something that sabotaged me. Mm -hmm. Well, take a snapshot of that because it occurs all over life, but not just with food. I started noticing it with executives I was working with. They'd have a big breakthrough at work and then go home that night and have a big dust up with their partner or family and have a big argument. And, you know, they'd walk in the door wanting to share this big thing and then boom, they get enrolled in an argument. Uh, or sometimes the other way around, people would have a really great time. You know, like I remember one executive on, on Sunday, they had a big thing where he and his wife renewed their vows. And then on Monday, he came in and had this big hailstorm at work with negativity. And so it's that tendency to punish ourselves and knock ourselves back down to where we were. And the big leap, as you know, is all about why we do that and how to stop doing that. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing like so much of your story. And I feel like as much as your story was like intense and, you know, not everyone's like hitting their head on the concrete to realize these things. I think so many parts of your story, people can just like just relate to so much of, you know, doing good for a couple of days and feeling amazing. And then making, you know, a choice like eating an ice cream sundae. And it's just, we just don't even know. Like for me, what was coming up when you were sharing that was like, and it's never worth it. We all know. And it's like never worth it. You get the stomach ache, you get the whatever. And you're like, why, why did I even do that? So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing some of your, some of your story. I think that's so interesting. And I figured that there was a profound story to it because it's such profound wisdom. Um, you know, I, I now, because the big leap came out 10 or 15 years ago, I've got a stack of, I don't know how many examples of the upper limit problem people have sent me. And yeah. also I always say I have the best inbox in town because every day I wake up and there are people writing from all over the world telling me about big leaps they've made. And it makes for a great way to start the day. But one couple, they got married and then they were on their way to their honeymoon cottage and a hubcap, and they were so excited. They were, you know, dashing there. They wanted to make love and everything. And a hubcap fell off and rolled into the bushes. And her husband went into the bushes to get the hubcap and got poison ivy all over him and had to spend the next three days kind of in a bathtub full of ice cubes and that kind of thing to keep the swelling down terrible upper limit problems. So most of them aren't that extreme, thank goodness. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's so funny you bring that that story up because I remember that specifically from the book. And that's always kind of one question I've had is like, so there's ways that we bring ourselves back down. There's ways that we sabotage ourselves through like a choice that we make. For example, you know, having the ice cream sundae after eating healthy. But then there's also things that seem to bring us back down, right, to our our most comfortable emotional state that aren't really in our control, like that story, for example, or um, yeah, yeah, just say, you know, ne- not necessarily like getting in a fight with your partner, but you get like a flat tire, which almost seems out of your control. Yeah. So how do how does that work? How do we actually like manifest things that are out of our control to bring us back down? Well, here's what I say. If you have one flat tire, you know, people have flat tires. You're driving in a car on a road. If you have two or three things like that happen, look for a theme. You know, many people don't just have one argument in their relationship. They have an argument every Friday night or they have an argument every Sunday night or Monday morning. So there are themes and patterns. And that's really where to keep your attention because, you know, like a client of mine, CEO, she's a very powerful CEO of a company, but she has a residual fear of public speaking. She can do fine with 12 people around a boardroom table, but if she has to talk to 4,000 employees at a gigantic worldwide thing on video, you know, she gets clutchy in her throat. And so in working with her, she had planned a big speech one Thursday or whatever it was. And she woke up that morning with a sore throat. Hmm. Now, you know, sometimes a sore throat is just a sore throat. But fortunately, she made the connection. Oh, I have a fear of public speaking. Oh, I have a big speech today. Oh, I have a sore throat. Hmm. How could I be doing that to myself? Well, remember something, what I call the three P's, punishment, protection, and prevention. Whenever you find yourself coming down with something like a cold or a sore throat, ask yourself, is this punishment? Am I punishing myself for something that I feel guilty about? Or Mm -hmm. am I protecting myself from something like she was protecting herself with her sore throat from having to give this speech? Or was she preventing something from happening? So the three P's will often explain kind of the technicalities of our unconscious. It's just a good thing to remember that many people sabotage themselves as a way of punishing themselves. Some people sabotage themselves as a way of protecting themselves from something, and others have a way of preventing themselves from something they don't want to do uh, Mm. by coming down with an illness or having a... um, accident. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just have a very recent example of that because two of my friends were visiting me yesterday and they just come back from a um, a trip to uh, the Yellowstone area. I forget what those mountains are called. Grand Tetons, I believe. Anyway, they're very high mountains. Um, and one of them have gotten very altitude sick and had to be brought back down and couldn't stay at that hotel. But when she finally tuned into it, she realized she hadn't really wanted to go at all. 
And so sometimes we punish ourselves for for making our do things do for making ourselves do things that we don't really want to do. So be very careful of making agreements that you don't really want to make because oftentimes the unconscious remembers those things and has a way of tripping us up. Mhm. Yeah, I mean one of the concepts that I've been playing with recently is like we really do only manifest what we want. Like we only create in our lives what we want. And so a lot of times the things that aren't what we want, and we're like, oh, well, I didn't want this. A part of you did want that, right? So she she didn't want to get right. altitude sickness, but like you're saying, you she know, wanted very, to avoid, yeah. Yeah. So really she didn't we want to do something she want. didn't want to do. Yeah. 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 I think that's a very Yeah, because also if you look at it too, if you really want to understand why you're doing the same thing over and over again. It also has to do with payoffs because we do things that get a payoff, although it may be an unconscious payoff. You know, it may be a painful payoff, uh, but it's some kind of reward or payoff we're getting out of it. So that's the reason I think it's important to do your self inquiry with a very open heart and a benign attitude instead of finding fault with yourself. Just think you're opening up and revealing layers of yourself that you've never revealed before. In The Big Leap, I talk about there's only a handful of limiting beliefs that people have, but one of them is accounts for a lot of problems. A lot of us go around with a limiting belief that we don't deserve the good things of life. It's a belief that somehow... I'm not worthy or I don't deserve it because of something I've done or because of something about I come from the wrong side of the tracks or I'm the wrong body type or the wrong skin color or something. So people feel bad about some aspect of themselves and then that prevents them, that limiting belief. It's like a sign that you're wearing that says, don't give me good things because I don't feel like I deserve them. And people say, okay, okay. <laughs> you know, the universe always says yes. And so if you've got a big sign on you that says, I don't deserve, the universe will say, okay, I'll show. I'll show you examples of that. And so you keep having that over and over again. Uh, one of my, when I used to work in, and live in Colorado, I was a professor there at the university for uh, 21 years. And in the counseling psychology department, which I really enjoyed, I was uh, in charge of teaching a whole bunch of really bright people every year how to be counseling psychologists and um, life coaches and that kind of thing. And it was wonderful because I only had to work with small classes, you know, 12 or 15 people at a time. And so it was great work. But eventually... Oprah came along and talked me right out of it. Uh, <laughs> our first book, Conscious Loving, which we literally wrote sitting on the on cushions on the uh, floor of our living room in our apartment. Next thing we knew, a year or two later, we're on Oprah talking to, instead of talking to 10 couples in our living room, we're talking to 10 million couples. And things like that can only happen, though, if you say, I'm willing. I deserve it. I'm okay. 
Um, and but if you shut that down, if you don't think you deserve it, well, I would have probably been sitting and practicing in a small office in Colorado. But one time a guy came in and he was in his mid thirties and he had had 17 different relationships since he was a teenager end very abruptly where the woman would dump him or the woman would just disappear or something would happen. And, uh, even though this kept happening over and over again, it didn't occur to him until he was in his mid-30s. And he came in and he said the most amazing thing. He said, I'm beginning to wonder if it has something to do with me. Mm. You know, only a human being could be that obtuse. You know, because if a, if a dog or a cat ran down a tunnel every time and the tunnel, boom, <laughs> You know, they bang their nose. They would not keep doing that 17 times. But we do. We do things like that over and over again because we're enthralled to a limiting belief. All limiting beliefs are held together by fear also. So I talk in the big leap about, you know, how to open and uncover and admit and get conversant with your fears become a student of fear because if you can learn to know what triggers you in fear you can really smoothly move through life by just oh i see what i'm scared of <sighs> you know acknowledging it and moving on rather than oh shrinking back from your fears there's a famous self-help book that's something like feel the fear and do it anyway you know that's that's a good philosophy I, I wish I knew, remembered who wrote that so I could credit them. But the idea, I've used that idea many times, even before I heard of that book, the idea of, look, your fear, you don't have to shrink back because of it. You can just feel it and understand it and be with it and then use it as fuel to go forward more into what you want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. That's one of my favorite quotes as well. I actually didn't know it was a book. I need to look that up, feel the fear and do it anyway. But I, I'm always saying that same thing. I mean, feeling fear and running away definitely helped us when we were cavemen, but not today. Today is like, yeah, feel, feel the fear and run, run towards it. So I love that you bring that up. Well, this, yeah. There, many people don't understand too, because they haven't looked into their fear. Um, fear has four components to it, four big components to it. Uh, in other words, people do one of four things when they get scared. Some people are fighters or flighters. In other words, one of the two things that people do is when they get scared is they come out and get aggressive. And it's to take the attention away from the fact that they're very scared. Uh, some people um, run from fear, avoid it. They go the other direction. So there's the famous fight or flight syndrome, but also there are two other Fs. There's freeze and faint. Some of us freeze up when we get scared and mm -hmm. uh, we can't think straight and our bodies get stiff and we get tongue tied. Some of us get faint in the sense, not necessarily of keeling over faint, but we get spacey in our heads and 
kind of lose focus and lose concentration. So remember your four Fs, fight, flee, freeze, and faint. Just keep noticing which one of those Fs you're drawn to and, and quit effing yourself. And quit effing yourself. I love that. Um, yeah, that's also amazing. I kind of want to switch gears because I want to talk about, you talk a lot about creativity. And I feel like I I need to hear from you. What what exactly does creativity mean and what does that look like? Um, yeah, what, what does that look like in your life? You talk about it, uh, you know, in, in a lot of different places in your teachings, I think, and in relationships. And um, yeah, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit more on on that, on creativity. Well, creativity, I think, is essential to human life. If you think about it, we all got here by incredibly creative things that our genetic ancestors did and things like that. You know, we've virtually had the same size brain now for the last 50,000 years or so at least. So really the only kind of stuff we've changed is the software, how we use our brains. And that's changed a lot over the past 50,000 years. Human beings have only been farming and graduate and gathering around cities for just a wink of an eye, 10,000 years or so. Before that were hundreds of generations of hunter gatherers. And that's a whole different lifestyle. You know, that's very different roles for men and women and things like that. So if you roll the clock forward now, you know, we're just on the front edge of a big evolutionary shift where we're really for the first time in history, learning more about how to get along with each other and how to collaborate in big ways. You know, collaboration for our ancestors was three of you collaborating and sneaking up on a big animal to kill it. And the collaboration now, I've been on <laughs> I've been on Zoom calls and calls like this with literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of people at a time. So that's a whole different world we're living in now. And one of the things that's important in it is to learn how to communicate our feelings to each other in a way that doesn't cause so much damage. You know, that Mm -hmm. uh, you can say, I felt scared yesterday in our conversation. That's very different from saying, you scared me yesterday. You know, that's a very aggressive way of transferring the responsibility from my fear to what you did. There's another big concept that makes the world go around now in a negative way, and that is the blame game. You know, if you turn on your television news, for example, you'll never hear a politician say, you know, my party and I take full responsibility for how things are right now. (laughs) In fact, nobody ever says that, even if things are terrible. What they say is the other folks, they're responsible for it. I just inherited this mess. I'm trying to clean it up. Well, human beings have been engaging in that particular form of drama for I don't know how many centuries, but how it shows up in human relationships is that Two people both think they're the victims and they run for the victim position at the same time. And one of them says, 
you're making my life miserable. And the other one says, no, wait a minute. You're the one that's making my life miserable. We've had couples in here that have literally been dug into that victim position for 20 or 30 years, having the same argument over and over and over again. It's astounding to me that human beings can put up with pain for that long and not do anything about it. But here's the simple maneuver. At some point, you have to stand up and take 100% personal responsibility for the way your life goes. Because if you're giving 1% of the power to somebody else, you're giving away too much. And so 100% responsibility is a joyful act of ownership. It's not a, oh no, I'm responsible for this. Uh, it's not a burden and it's not about blame. It's about, oh, I created this, therefore I can clear it up. But if you think you're the victim of it, you can't clear it up because somebody else is in charge of it. And so uh, that's one thing I learned a lot in corporate consulting was there was a period of my life back in the 90s when I would um, when I was hungrier <laughs> and I would go to places like Dell Computer or Motorola and help straighten out big problems that were happening there on the boardroom and that kind of thing. And inevitably, it would come down to the same kind of thing. You know, people would dig themselves into the victim position and think the other people were out to get them. The other thing is the other people that were thinking out to get them were themselves dug into the victim position thinking he was out to get them. And so everybody was engaged in this victim dance. And the only way out of that is to take 100% joyful personal responsibility and say, okay, what did I do to create this situation? Because the moment you do that, you have the power to change it. Hmm. I love that. So yeah, creativity, it's more about like taking responsibility so you can create different outcomes. Yes. Creativity is, on a personal level, is a lot about that. Creativity yeah. on a, as a, like a, on a work of art, like if you're writing a book or cooking a soup or uh, playing something on your piano, improvising. I say creativity is that which has the capacity to surprise you. Mm. I'm a writer, and so many times in my writing, I'll write a sentence, and I'll, it'll surprise me. I'll say, where did that come from? You know, because I wasn't consciously trying to create anything beautiful. I was just trying to create an idea or explain an idea. And suddenly it'll come out like poetry. I love those moments because it lets me know that someplace larger than my ego and my log logical brain is looking out for my creativity. You know, some deep pool of creativity deep inside us. To me, creativity is something that needs to be nurtured and celebrated and practiced on a daily basis. Unless you're sitting down for 10 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour and doing your creativity every day, I don't think you should ask for a happy life because to me, a happy life includes daily processing your creativity. 
And so if you want to have a happy life, own your creativity and get busy expressing that. It's so important. Mm, wow. I I love that so much. And I think f- for a lot of people, like creativity has never resonated with them because they didn't like paint or draw. And I feel like we kind of grow up to see creativity as like, you know, a certain type of medium or modality. Um, like I always thought I wasn't creative or artistic at all because all of my siblings would paint and I didn't. And so I would be like, oh, well, I'm not very creative. When really I was, I just kind of had put in a box what that could look like. Um, and and what I love now is is that there are so many different ways to create. Um, and I think we're able to see that more nowadays. So yeah, I really love yeah, that. Yeah, because if you think about it, like one of my uh, mentors, uh, Abraham Maslow says, it doesn't matter if you're composing a genius symphony or making a genius soup. It's all the same because you're, you know, like my wife, in addition to being able to write books and be on Oprah and teach classes and things like that, she's also a magnificent chef and she loves to cook. And it's just a passionate art form of hers. And actually, I go in oftentimes just to watch her make a soup or make something uh, and talk to her while she's doing it because I love to watch the the graceful movements and the experimentation with spices. And, you know, she's always tweaking the soup until she gets it just right. Well, that's, uh, you know, on another occasion, she might be tweaking a sentence until it is just right. But whatever it is, I think as long as you give your attention to it, it's something enlivening and it's something that can surprise you. That's a good way to think of your creativity. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. That's so perfect. Uh, And speaking of your wife, I mean, yeah, you guys obviously look like you have such a successful partnership and you have the book Conscious Loving. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the keys to a successful partnership? Can you spill all your secrets of (laughs) Conscious Loving and successful partnership? Well, I've mentioned a couple of them. One, First, when in a relationship, you have to be authentic with each other. Otherwise, if you're putting on an act in any way or lost in an old programmed role that you learned growing up, you can't really have a relationship. You have an entanglement. A relationship is only between two equal beings two equal beings. And our definition of co-creativity is two creative beings come together and decide to have a relationship that feeds their own individual creativity and then creates what I call the genius of the relationship. Mm. So two people, when they get together, We say there are three kinds of relationships. There are learning relationships where when you get together with another person, there are things you need to learn about yourself to get along with that person and things you need to learn about that person. And if you learn them, then you get to have a close relationship. And so that's like 80% of the relationships out there are in learning relationships. We also acknowledge that about 10% of relationships are what we call toxic relationships. 
where the people got together and make each other miserable. They make each other sick. They have more sick days every year that they're together. And um, they're not happy. The kids aren't happy. And so in a toxic relationship, as a couples counselor, a lot of times you're faced with the problem of having to help them get out of it before they do further damage to the other person. So 80% learning relationships, 10% toxic. And then there's this wonderful 10% that I want all of you to get into someday because my wife and I have been there for many years and is the most delicious things. It is what we call celebratory relationships, where the main task is celebration celebrating what you're doing, celebrating the gifts you're giving to the world, celebrating your creativity. You're not grinding any axes with each other anymore. You're not trying to be right. You're not doing any of that old stuff, but you're just celebrating. And, you know, we have occasionally couples come in, like we had a couple come in and he was 75 and she was 71. And they'd been married for 50 some years since they were kids, practically. And, um, you know, they had grown adult children and grandchildren. And so we said, you know, why are you here? Uh, And they said, well, you know, we just want to find out how much good times we can generate in our final years together. Well, Mm -hmm. that to me is like, whoa, you know, that was hard opening for me even because when I heard that, that was 25 years ago, maybe, you know, and I hadn't realized what was possibilities in older age. But my wife and I started working way back in the 80s on eliminating blame and criticism from our relationship. And that was an important thing because as we got better at taking responsibility for things that came up rather than blaming the other person, what happened is it began to liberate and open up more of our own individual genius. And so we realized, oh my goodness, genius is the real beneficiary of all of these tools that we're teaching. Because if you can learn to take responsibility for things that come up rather than getting into the victim position and blaming your partner, wow, you free up tremendous amount of time and energy that can be then used to flourish creatively and write your books and write your poems and make your soups. When you're engaged in that kind of victim-y kind of thing with each other, codependence, I think they call it, then you're really making a, a miserable experience out of something that can actually be sublime and exalting. I mean, if you really think about it, Maddie, how many species are there on planet Earth, planet Earth? There's about 9 million species, mm. okay? About half of them, maybe more than half, are bugs, some of which will only live 13 hours, mayflies. Their entire lifetime is 13 hours. Oh, wow. So middle age for them is noon, you know? <laughs> and, yep. and then evening, they die off. Well, we're a fancy version of that. We're around for 80 or 90 years or, you know, whatever. And so I'm 78 now. So uh, I'm in good health and everything, but you never know how long you're going to be around here. And so uh, Katie and I started working on eliminating blame and criticism. And by the end of the last century, 
we had gotten to the point where we just didn't have any blame or criticism anymore. We just didn't do that. Instead, if something came up, we both took responsibility. Hmm, why is that happening now? Oh, is that an upper limit problem? You know, so we would just clear it up in 10 seconds sometimes or 10 minutes at the most. And so uh, I, now we're in 2023. So we've had, you know, close to 25 years of nobody saying anything critical or judgmental or unpleasant to the other person. And that allows a tremendous flourishing of positive energy. And so in that period of time, like between the two of us, we've written this century, um, I believe 18 books. Oh, wow. Now, how many, how many of those would we have, we have written if we had been arguing all day with each other. Why did you write the sentence like that? That wasn't my sentence, that was your sentence. You know, it, we've, had to, we've had people in here who've gotten into big squabbles and collaboration that you know, they couldn't get out of. But we just haven't had that for the last 25 years or so. So imagine the amount of freedom that that can give you. That's what moving through your upper limits can really do for you. Hmm. What, what would you say to somebody who's listening that is like, okay, I hear you. I know that my life would be a million times better if I wasn't, you know, blaming and criticizing, but just whatever they do, they always fall into the cycle with their current partner, whether it's them getting triggered or the other person just can't seem to stop blaming them. Is there any, I guess, um, strategies or yeah yes there's a very big one and that is that most people try to change something without making a clear commitment to Mm. changing it and especially is true in close relationships couples relationships so it's very hard to change a relationship pattern unless you get co-commitment from you and the other person The same thing is true for boardroom situations. Until I can get everybody to say yes to solving the problem, the problem doesn't get solved. But once everybody gets a yes to solving it and makes a commitment to it, then the problem sometimes gets solved before we can help it practically, within 10 minutes sometimes. So it's all a matter of commitment. In fact, in relationship, commitment is such a huge issue because one of the things we've worked with close to 5,000 couples now in our seminars or here in the office. And one of the things we've found is that almost nobody makes a clear commitment to solving a problem, a commitment that's bigger than their own ego. You know, so I ask people, I say, are you willing to make a commitment right now? Look the other person in the eye and say, I commit to solving this problem. Well, you think that would be easy, but you'd also be amazed to know that it sometimes takes an hour or two hours to get both people to say yes. Because so many people come into relationship with one foot out the back door. 
In other words, they haven't made a full-scale heartfelt commitment, mind, body, spirit. They've got some reservations, and they're holding out on that. And that's not just people in their first year of relationship either. Sometimes we've had people in here that have been together 20 or 30 years but had never really made a full-scale whole-body commitment. So it's very important to understand the power of commitment and how to put it to good use in order to really propel yourself into change rapidly. Without commitment, nobody's going anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love it because it kind of full circles back to the first story you told us of the moment of yourself being like, I, in this moment, I'm committing to figuring out this problem. And there was probably moments before your commitment where you're like, okay, I want to eat better. I want to be healthier. I want to do all these things. But it wasn't until you like had that moment where you slipped, where you fully committed and were like, I vow, right? I think the word you used was vow in that scenario, but right. I commit to like, I'm going to figure this out. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's huge. Yeah. It's one thing to think you're committed but it's another thing to feel committed, you know, to have your heart and mind working together in alignment. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's pain, wherever there's pain, whether it's in your body or in your relationship or at work, pain is often caused by lack of alignment, misalignment. You know, in your body, maybe, well, I don't know if Margaret told you this, my assistant told you this, but I broke my leg a few months ago and mm. I, I'm, I have uh, six bolts and a metal rod and a metal plate in my right leg now. And so I've literally been learning to walk again oh, from wow. the get go. And so, um, but in many ways, that's just a metaphor for what happens in life that you're going along and you know i didn't wake up that day i'd never broken a bone in my life and i hadn't even had a cold in 25 years and you know so i didn't wake up that day and say hey i think i'll break my leg today but stuff happens in life you know if you walk around on this planet long enough you're bound to, bound to bang into something and so uh, it was a great example of a great metaphor for life because what you have to do, no matter what your setback happens to be, is make a new commitment that includes whatever the current reality is. And so I got my heart and mind set on doing my exercises and doing what the PT people tell me to do and getting back on my feet again. And so that's what the process of the last few months has been. In a way, though, it's like everything else in life. You don't know what's coming at you a lot of times, but once you have the situation, you need to make a new commitment that includes the current reality and gets you moving on from there. Mm, yeah. It's really I, interesting that I, I broke my leg and at the same time, you know, over the past few months, there's never been any negativity. My wife hasn't said anything negative and I haven't said anything negative to her. You know, it's been quite a, a miraculous kind of thing. And so um, it, it was a good learning experience in that regard that 
to uh, have a have a relationship where a major thing can happen and doesn't break up the flow of uh, loving energy one bit. Totally. Well, and I I think the commitment it it has a lot a lot to play into your identity. Like when I'm thinking of this like commitment, it really is like a change in your identity of like, you're not just committing to a goal, but also just committing to the person you want to be. And so, you know, if, if you've never smoked, if you've never been a smoker and then someone offers you a cigarette, it's very easy to say, no, you're going to be like, no, I don't smoke. Right. And it's probably the same for you and your wife. It's like, well, you guys are you don't fight. You're not people who do that, right? Because of that commitment, you've you've really shifted your identity to be the type of people and couple where it's just easy for that to to not happen. It would it would be outrageous for you know there to be that um, yeah lack of love and and getting angry at each other because that's just not who you are. So in a way, I think your commitment in my eyes it really shifts your identity, which I think is one of the most powerful things you can you can do. So. Um, yeah, that's amazing, and I hope you have a speedy recovery with your leg. I can't. Well, thank you. Yeah, this can't is. Uh, I can't. Uh, I can't sit up for real long periods of time. In fact, my knee's beginning to bother me a little bit now. It's funny. The pain of this has been mostly in my knee, although mm-hmm. one of the breaks was up toward my hip. Um, but anyway, you've you've heard everything I have to say. So, uh, uh, let shall we wrap things up? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Can you just tell everyone really quickly where they can find you, what you have going on, how they could possibly uh, work with you? And I'll make sure I just link everything in the show notes. Yes. Well, come to Hendrix.com, H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S.com. That's the main jumping off place for all our different works. Uh, you'll see there are trainings. We have a number of trainings every year for people that want to learn our work. And uh, we also have places we show up in the world to make speeches and do things. Uh, so you can find out all the information at Hendrix.com. And uh, we also have a nonprofit foundation that you can also find from there that has all sorts of cool resources and is doing lots of good things in the world. And of course, our books are everywhere and uh, wherever people sell books there, you can find a copy of The Big Leap or any of our other books, too. Beautiful. I love it. Well, thank you so much. It's been such an honor having you on the podcast. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Maddie. Great talking to you. All right. Bye, everyone. 